Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Word of the Lord. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I've been kind of walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is Jesus' teaching that he really did to kind of a mixed crowd on the side of a hill by the Sea of Galilee. And the main idea about the Sermon on the Mount is, is the kingdom of God. And when Jesus came preaching, he came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so when you look at, at this teaching by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the main theme, the main idea is God's kingdom has come to earth. It is present with us. And it is an already not yet kingdom. It already resides within us through the work of his spirit to those who are truly born again. Not yet, one day it will be fully established with a new heaven and a new earth. And so what Jesus does in the teaching here, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, he begins with who we are as kingdom citizens. The Beatitudes are really a picture of who Christians are to be. We are God's people, and we're to live out who we are in Christ. And then in chapter 6, he kind of shifts, and he begins to teach us what are we to do. And chapter 6 focuses in the beginning, particularly verses 1 through 18, it looks at, at three, if you, you might call them religious practices. Jesus begins to talk about prayer. He begins to talk about what we do when we fast. Jesus begins to, to, to minister and help people understand it's not so much the practice, but the heart of the practice. And he also talks about giving. Now he's dealing with two different things here. And the main idea that I really want you to get today is that God is concerned with our attitude, our heart. What is behind the things that we do? Now, I hope you remember in, when we were in chapter 5, Jesus said that his kingdom people are to be salt and light in the world. God does not want us to cloister ourselves away in some kind of a convent. That is not God's plan. We are to influence the world. First, he says, is salt. Salt is a subtle influence on food. We, in the same way, are to have the influence of Christ in the people that we know and the relationships that we have. But also, like light breaks into darkness, there are times when we just take a stand for Christ and we're bold with Christ. Both things are true for God's people. And today, particularly, what Jesus is going to do Jesus in this section in, in chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, he's going to show how God's people should honor him in a world that is dark and sinful. How are we as God's people to live out as God's citizens of his kingdom 
in a dark and sinful world. First thing we'll see this morning is God's people are to live with an eternal perspective on treasure. As God's people, we are to have an eternal perspective on all the things and who we are, but also on what we own. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus does right up front as he gives two commands. He gives a negative and a positive. In verse 19, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. And then in verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now these are present active imperatives or verbs. And what he's saying here is it's active, it's present today. And since it's present active, it's moving on into the future. He wants us to understand that this is an exhortation for God's people. It's not so much about what we possess, but our heart about what we possess. Do we have a love for? Do our possessions control us? Now, the two words right up front I want to work with, one is called store up and the other is treasure because they're both from the same Greek word. Store up is terrorizo, and treasures is therosoros. You might get the English word thesaurus, right? Kind of this idea of a treasury of words. And that idea of treasures is a very large word. It encompasses many different things. It's all inclusive. It does include money, but it's not only money. It can be anything that we possess. It can be actually more than the things we can possess. It can be anything that we treasure. It could even be relationships. Now, the Greek idea, when you, when you read those words, it kind of carries the idea of stacking up coins and hoarding them and not using them and not spending them. And God has made many promises here. And the material blessings that he has made promises for people that are faithful to him. And God understands that we have needs and he wants to take care of our needs. But the question is, do the things that you own actually own you? Is your heart given over to those things? Now, there are many examples of godly people that were material wealthy in the scriptures. In the Old Testament particularly, you think of Abraham. Abraham was very wealthy, but he had this eternal perspective. As a matter of fact, the thing that was most precious to him, his own son Isaac, he offered him up to God as a sacrifice to obey God. Think about Job. Job was considered the wealthiest man at that time, and he absolutely lost everything. Listen to Job's response in Job chapter 1, verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's an eternal perspective. How about Joseph? Joseph was a second man in Egypt, very wealthy, but when his brothers who had abused him and sold him into slavery came, he took care of them for years out of his wealth. Again, an eternal perspective. Do you have that eternal perspective with the things that God has allowed you to steward? Now, first he gives this negative command. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
Now, when Jesus made this statement, everyone who heard him understand what he was saying because he's speaking about some areas in that culture which were very prevalent. There were three main ways that people would call treasure. The first one was clothing. Then it was food supply. And the other would be what you might call material wealth, such as gems and, and money. So the idea of garments were considered to be part of your treasure. It makes me think of Achan in the book of Joshua. If you remember, Achan actually stole a Babylonian garment, even though Joshua told him, don't take anything. The Lord said, do not take anything. From, it was the, the group called Ai that they were being attacked from. And he stole it and he put it under his tent. Well, God judged him and his whole family for that because they viewed, if you will, clothing as valuable. It was a temptation. And not only clothing, the second word in there is called rust. Now, we think, well, rust, he must be talking about precious metals, but he's not. That idea actually carries with it the idea of eating. It's about the foodstuffs that they stored. And it really is closer related to things such as worms and vermin, like mice and rats that would get into your foodstuffs. And so in those days, they would, they would store great grains and all those kind of things, and that, how much you had was considered your wealth. And what Jesus is trying to tell them is it's not going to last. None of this stuff is going to go with you. And the third item, finally, is gold, silver, and gems. And even those things, you really couldn't hold on to it and, and keep it to yourself. You know, we have banks, right? And you can store money in a safe deposit box and all that. But in those days, basically, they would store it in their house. They would hide it. Well, the homes are made out of mud. You could dig right through the wall in five minutes. And so they often, people would experience people stealing from them. None of these things will last. That's the idea here. He says, we're moth and rust destroy and we're thieves break in and steal. And so this is a warning both for the rich and for the poor. It's not so much about how much you own, but the affections of the heart of what you own. Now, these things that we own, the things that we have, it could even be things such as work or status or other things, maybe like shoes or, or whatever. If something has your heart, if something you consider a treasure, the idea is, is that treasure something that you oversee as a good steward or is this something that has a hook in you, in your heart? Now, Karen has a cousin and she has for years been collecting beanie babies. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beanie babies. You go into her house and there's a beanie baby everywhere. As a matter of fact, not only that, she collects Elvis memorabilia. I mean, her whole house is like an Elvis shrine. Well, guys, that has become the treasure of her heart. It absolutely dominates who she is. Everything has a hook in her. Is there anything in your life, even a beanie baby, that can capture the heart. Did you know that the Egyptians, they thought that you could actually take physical things into the afterlife? You know, they've discovered all these Pharaoh's tombs, right? Let me share with you some of the things they found in Pharaoh's tombs. They found clothing and shoes and fine jewels and perfumes and cosmetics and games. They found musical instruments and writing materials. They found heirlooms and, and, and tables and tablecloths and chairs. They found food. They found preserved meats and grains and fruits, and they even found wine and beer. Hey, there's a party. But the Bible's clear. You cannot and will not take any of it with you. Paul the Apostle said this in 1 Timothy 6, 7. He says, for we have brought nothing into the world, 
So we cannot take anything out of it either. I read a story about a man. He was buried with his Cadillac. Now, this was a number of years ago. Guess what? That thing is a piece of rust right now. Again, what we acquire, what we have, the question that he's asking is, does it have your heart? Does it have you? But Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And it's sad for me as a, as a pastor because I hear people say, well, I worship Christ, but yet when I look at their life, what they're actually worshiping are the things of this world. I don't see any movement for the things of, of God's kingdom and His glory. But everything, all their energy, all their time, all their treasure is given over to self and the accumulation of stuff. Now, this does not mean that you cannot have a saving account. It does not mean that you shouldn't be a wise steward. You should be. The however in that, does that bank account, does it have you? Now, Jesus also says a positive command. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. He says, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So we first have to take a look at that, what it doesn't mean. Now, some scholars think that that means that you can earn your salvation, that somehow you store up enough and, whoop, you're in. It's kind of that weighting of the scales, right? God weighs you out, your life, and at the end, okay, you have a good enough treasure, you get into heaven. It's not going to work that way. Because the bulk of the New Testament does not teach that. It teaches that you are saved through God's grace by faith. And your justification is because of that faith you have in Christ and the work that he did on the cross. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle, he just makes it so clear in all his writings, but I think one of the clearest ones is Titus chapter 3. Let me read that to you. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, that's Jesus Christ, he saved us. It's not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but it is according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we've been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You are an heir of eternal life because of the grace of God. You are justified by faith in Christ, not your own works. So if you are standing on anything that you do or anything that you own, you are going to fall way short of the glory of God. So it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we can get or buy salvation. So what does it mean? What Jesus is saying right here is that believers are positively rewarded in eternity according to the way that we live out our lives here and the way that we steward the things, the riches that God has given us. That there is an economy in heaven that God is, sees our hearts and the things that he provides for us. And are we faithful do we have that eternal perspective in everything that we are, that is the gifts that he's given us, the talents that we have, the time that we use, and the possessions? Do we use them for the glory of God? Now, Jesus himself had this attitude of eternity in mind. Wherever Jesus went and whenever he spoke, he always spoke the things that happen here actually impact what happens there. Listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 3 and 4. This is what he says. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus says, Father, you sent me to earth. I have accomplished what you called me to do. And my goal was to glorify you, that, that everything that I am about is to bring you glory. That's the idea. That's that eternal perspective. And when you read the different apostles in the New Testament, all of them had this eternal perspective. As a matter of fact, Paul, he, I think he's the clearest one. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1, 21 and 22. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which one to choose. Paul's saying, look, I, I, I'm kind of at a quandary here. Because when I live here, I'm living for Christ. The wealth that I have, the things that I do, the gifts that he's given me, it's for him. And he says, and it means fruitful, fruitful labor. That means fruitful for the kingdom, right? It's going on ahead. It's kingdom bound. I don't know what to do. Because I know the Lord wants me to work here. However, man, it's so much better there. So much better. Because I'm with the Lord. Same idea. And when you read all these different perspectives, they're all pointing. Do you think that way? Do you see that the things that God has allowed you to be and have, it's all His. And we're simply stewards here. I think about the writer of Hebrews. You know, in Hebrews 11, they call it the faith chapter, and it's really about all the Old Testament saints, those in the Old Testament who believed in a coming Messiah. And when you read about their faith, they all had this eternal perspective. As a matter of fact, when it's speaking of Abraham, in Hebrews 11.10, it says, he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's looking for the celestial city. You ever read Pilgrim's Progress? The celestial city, man, the eternity. That's what he wants for us. To have that, our mind there, our heart there with the things that he's given us here. As a matter of fact, G. Campbell Morgan put it like this. He says, you are to remember with the passion burning within you that you are not the child of today. You're not of the earth. You are more than dust. You are the child of tomorrow. You are of the eternities. You are the offspring of deity you belong to the infinite. If you make your fortune on earth, poor, sorry, silly soul, you have made a fortune and you've stored it in a place where you cannot hold it. Make your fortune but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of a new morning. Everything we have is his and we get to steward. What a privilege. Now Jesus says here, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven but where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or still. Do you understand that everything that goes to heaven, that it doesn't fade away? It won't be stolen. It doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. It lasts for eternity. As a matter of fact, there is no decay in heaven. And, and Paul the Apostle talks about this, this kingdom perspective most clearly in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, and instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, and be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation of the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. One of the sheer evidences that 
that you know Christ is that you kind of have this perspective that the things that you have, that you're stewarding, that you have this eternal perspective, you become generous and, and, and it just changes the dynamic of the things that you look and hold to here on earth. Now, Paul explains very clearly in the, in the scripture that one day we will stand and, and be judged. Now, you will not stand if you know Christ at the great white throne judgment. Now, that is a judgment. But you will stand before the very bema seat of Christ. And, and if you will, he will weigh out how you stewarded the things that God gave you, your time, your talent, and your treasure. And there will be rewards. Let me read to you what Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. He says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you have nothing. Now, once Christ has been laid as the foundation of our life, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through the fire. Now, what this reward is, the Bible really isn't clear, but definitely there is an economy in heaven. And everything that we say, do, everything that we possess will be weighed out, if you will, in the balance and see if, if it's used for the glory of God. And Jesus is emphasizing that the treasure in heaven will be eternal. Nothing will destroy it. Now, maybe you've heard the term, he is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Have you heard that term? I, I don't like that term. Because the way that that works is the more heavenly minded you are, you're actually more effective on earth because you have this eternal perspective and the things that, that you have here really don't matter as much and you have your focus on pleasing the Lord here and you're going to do so much more for him and for the glory of God and his kingdom. So Jesus ends this, this teaching with a summary statement. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, the heart represents the core of who you are. It does include the emotions, but it's, it's who you are at your very core. And one of the ways to tell what you really trust, what you really love, is how you handle the treasure that God has given you, your time, your talent, your treasure. One thing you may ask yourself is, the things that you're putting your energy into, the things that you're putting your money into, where is it going to be in 200 years? How about 200 trillion years? Will it matter? Ask yourself, are you making wise investments for eternity with your time, your talent, your treasure? I read an article this past week about a person. Her name is Bertha Adams. It's actually a very sad story. Bertha died at the age of 71 in Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday, 1976. And the coroner's report said that she, she died of malnutrition. She starved to death. And when the authorities made their preliminary investigation on her home, they found the biggest mess they had ever found in any home. She was a hoarder. You ever seen any of those shows about hoarders? Well, she was a hoarder on steroids. And everything she collected. But the interesting thing about her is she would go to her neighbors and beg food. And she would go to the Salvation Army to get her clothes. And as they were investigating her home, they found two keys to do two different locked boxes at two different savings and loans. 
And the first lockbox they found, they opened it up, and there were 700 AT&T stock certificates as well as hundreds of other companies in there, as well as $200,000 in cash. Over a million dollars that one lockbox was worth. The second lockbox didn't have any stock certificates. It only had $600,000 in cash. See, they thought that she was a penniless widow, but instead, everything she had, she hoarded it. And she died not only without that, she died without Christ. That's just an example, maybe a, a sad example, of the lethal dangers of materialism. But God wants our heart in the right place. God's people are to live with an eternal perspective on our treasure, first thing. Second thing, God's people are to have a clear mind and a generous heart. God's people are to have a clear mind and a generous heart. What you think matters. And if you trust in the truth of the scriptures, it will change who you are. Verses 22 and 23 says, And the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So Jesus begins there with this concept, the eye is the lamp of the body. And God has made man in three parts, the mind, the spirit, and the body. And God has made man in his image, and the highest gift that God has given to man is the gift of the mind. Of every creature that God made, man has the ability to reason, to think. And mankind is meant to function with the mind first. We are to reason we are to see things, think about it, and then we act and move. That is the way that God has designed us. The problem in is sin. Because sin has crept in, it has impacted and affected the way that people actually move and think and react. And whenever the Bible speaks about those that don't know Christ, it speaks about them as in darkness. That means lacking understanding. Now, if you notice, Jesus started this section with the idea of the heart, that is the emotion, the spirit of the person. And I think he did that on purpose because that's where people reside because they're in sin. Verse 21 again of chapter 6 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, if you want to know where the center of a person's heart is, see how they deal with their treasure. But the natural man is, governed by under, is not governed by understanding or wisdom as God designed it to be. Instead, the person without Christ is governed by his desires, his affections, his lust. Now, I'm not saying that people that don't know Christ aren't intelligent. No, very intelligent. Many people are super smart. The issue is they can't understand spiritual things. Their mind, if you will, is in darkness. Now, Paul spoke about this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.3, he says, Among them too, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so the person without Christ, although they don't know it, they live in the lust of their flesh. Their desires drive them. But the godly man and woman, we're called to be governed by our understanding of truth, by the word of God. And this impacts the whole person. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He says, the important thing is that no man should be governed by his emotions and his desires. This is the effect of sin. A man should be governed by his mind, 
by his understanding. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, maybe you love Disney movies, but have you ever noticed Disney movies? They all have the same theme. Here's the theme. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Isn't that Disney? It is, right? And can I tell you something? Don't do it. You don't want to follow your heart. That's the issue. The problem is the heart. Because the person without Christ, their heart and their mind, it's darkened. They don't understand the things of God. There's another saying that's very popular today. It is, be true to yourself. I just heard it the other night. We were watching The Voice. Oh, that person is so true to themselves. They're so authentic. Oh, yee, yee. Whatever. What that means is being true to your natural inclinations being true to your sin, and that somehow that's going to lead you to the perfect world and happiness. Because of sin, the person without Christ is lost, and they are in darkness. Matter of fact, Paul the Apostle put it like this in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. He says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. This is what Jesus means in verse 22 where he says that the eye is bad, the eye is darkened, they cannot see. And what he's saying here is he's saying that the eye is clear. This is a person who sees and understands the gospel. This is a person who has received Christ and suddenly the light of Christ has flooded into their life. They understand. Their mind is open. For born-again believers, you and I have been changed spiritually. We've been transformed. We're different than those of the world, those that don't know Christ. Now listen again to verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness. I mean, how great is the darkness? Kind of the illustration of this, I was thinking, is kind of like a house, right? If you have a house with a lot of windows, you have all the windows open and, and the sunlight just floods in in every room you can see. But if it has shutters and you close all the shutters and you shut them down, that whole house is dark inside. That's the way it is with a person without Christ. They, they don't understand. Their mind is not clear. And that word clear, by the way, means sound or healthy. It's not sound. It's not healthy. But there's another meaning there to that Greek word for for clear or sound or healthy. The Greek word is hapless. And that word hapless, you know what it also means? It's tied right with what we've been talking about. Generous. Generous. It's talking about a generous spirit. I think Jesus absolutely used that word on purpose. It has a double meaning. One, if you know Christ, boom, your mind and heart is wide open to the things of God and you understand. If your eyes are bad, boom, it's in darkness. However, double meaning it shows that you know him. Why? Because you're generous. And by the way, that word for bad, it's called pronos. It also means ungenerous or stingy. The person who knows Christ, one of the evidences of your faith is that you have a generous heart. That you understand the reality of what God has done for you. And suddenly, you hold everything loosely. It's his. You're a steward. What an awesome thought. 
The light of Christ has come in. It has changed you. And suddenly everything you are and everything you own is you're a different person. You're generous. But the mind of men and women without Christ, it is darkened. Now you see this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament with that Greek word hapless. What happened in around 300 B.C. is is the Jews translated the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, into Greek. And they used this Greek word hapless for Old Testament text. As a matter of fact, they used that word in Proverbs 11.25. It says, the generous man will be prosperous, but he who waters himself will be watered. That's that word hapless. Now, the New Testament has it as well, James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, why am I sharing this? Because I think that you understand that if Christ is in you, it's changed you. And the way that you view treasures or riches or the things that you own or even who you are, you understand that basically it's on loan to you. You're just a steward. I'm just a steward. And what really matters is our attitude, our heart with the things that we have. Has your mind... Has your heart been filled with the light of Christ? Well, one way you'll be able to tell is, is it about you? Are you selfish? Or is it about Christ and others selfless? You know, when you think about light and darkness and and you think about, let's say, somebody in, in, in particularly the New Testament, the first person that comes to mind for me is Paul the Apostle. The guy was so lost in darkness that he was killing Christians He was capturing them, putting them in prison, making sure that they were killed. And he's on the road to Damascus to do that very thing. And on the road to Damascus, suddenly the bright light of Christ floods him and he becomes physically blind, but he's filled with the light of Christ and suddenly he sees spiritually. I mean, what a transformation that is, right? Of course, you know the story, the scales fall and God uses him mightily. Another person you may not know about is John Newton. He's a great hymn writer. He was a slave trader. He dealt in selling human beings. He was lost. He was ugly, so sinful. And he was on a ship, and the the ship was about to be shipwrecked, and he fell into the ocean, and he cried out to God to save him, not only from drowning, but also to save his soul. And he became a Christian and later became a pastor. And he's written the most famous hymn that we all know, Amazing Grace. The first stanza, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's the reality of the Christian faith. God's people live with eternal perspective on treasure. God's people have a clear mind and a generous heart. The third thing and final thing is God's people are to serve only God as their master. I don't know if you know this or not, but each of us is a child of God. But did you know that you're also considered a slave of God, a bond slave? Verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. So the word for masters is the word kurios, and it refers to a slave owner. The, the word for serve is the word doulos, and it refers to a slave So it's this relationship of what Jesus is talking about is what owns you? What owns me? 
What has your heart? And in particular, in context, he's speaking about wealth. He's talking about material possessions. The Greek word is manonis. In Aramaic, it's mammon. And it means worldly wealth. It means the things that you own, the things that you possess. And again, back to the heart. This idea of who is your master. Do the things that you have, do they have a hold on you? Or do you control them for the glory of God? Are you his? Do you know him so well that the things that you have here you hold kind of loosely? Or does everything here matter so much to you that that bank portfolio is always in your mind and in your thoughts? Or that car or that possession, that thing has a hold on you. This is where he's getting at. Because he says, for either you will hate the one and love the other, And this is a common Semitic term, this love and hate kind of idea. You know the clearest picture of this? Because for some people, it could be something other than a worldly possession like material things. It could even be a relationship. Jesus said this in Luke 14, 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. You're like, what? What is he saying there? Is he saying you need to hate your family? No. What he's saying is that your love for your master, who is Jesus Christ, should be so great that everything pales in comparison, that it would be viewed as hate if you compare it to that disparity between your love for him and your love for the things of this world, even the relationships of a family. We cannot serve two masters it's like trying to go in two different directions. It will literally tear you apart. And, and one of the fears that I have as a pastor is when people come for a while and then they disappear. I never know what happens. Oftentimes what it is, is a love of something in the world, a relationship, an item, a job, a house, a whatever. Because I've known godly parents love their kids, they're they're faithfully raising them in the admonition of the Lord and all of a sudden they just disappear because the kids' sports and recitals and all these things and they drift from the things of God to the things of this world and the child actually becomes the master and their whole life is given over. I've been in those situations where that relationship, after the kids leave and they have the empty nest, that's what happens to that relationship. Because he says here, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, Hebrews 13.5 puts it like this. says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So it's not the wealth that we have, and it's not even the money that we have. And it's not even if you're very wealthy. I've known many very wealthy people that are super generous. They have this... Eternal perspective. The issue is, does it have your heart? Is it the love of money? It's not the money. Money is just a tool that God lets us use. But do you love it? Does it have you? I want to close with an illustration. I read this past week about Henry Ford. And Henry Ford was in Dublin, Ireland, and he was on vacation with his family. And they had gone to a Christian orphanage. And And the orphanage was taking in a lot more kids and they didn't have enough room so they had a building project going on and the director of the building project approached Mr. Ford and asked him if he might be willing to give a donation. 
Well, in those days, which is well over 100 years ago, Mr. Ford, he gave 2,000 pounds. In those days, that was a big donation, a lot of money. In fact, it was so big that the local newspaper, they did a write-up on it and talked about how he gave us 2,000 pounds for this orphanage. Well, that was all great. The problem is the the newspaper article was written wrong. The the newspaper uh, journalist, he said that Mr. Ford gave 20,000 pounds. And so the director, when he saw it, he was like, oh, no. So he calls Mr. Ford. He says, can you please come back? I, I owe you an apology. So Mr. Ford, he goes back with his family to this orphanage. And the director said, I'm so sorry. I'm going to call for a retraction. I just wanted to personally tell you that. And Mr. Ford said, don't do that. He pulled out his checkbook and he wrote an additional 18,000 pounds. Guys, that is what I call an eternal perspective. That means that the money wasn't his master. He was willing to give. Now, this is what he said. He said, I just want this inscription on the building. He says, I was a stranger and you took me in. Who's your master? What has your heart? Do you have that eternal perspective with your talent and your time and your treasure? Does your mind and your heart, has it been transformed? Are you generous with the things that God has allowed you to steward? And lastly, is Jesus master or does something else have first place in your life? Let's pray. Well, Father, we'll turn this over to you now. Lord, I thank you for your kindness to us and how good you are. Lord, we see how generous you have been to us and how kind. Lord, I just pray now as we uh, close the service, Lord, that you would minister through the work of your spirit, that you would help us remain faithful with what you've called us to steward. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand? You know, this idea, kind of dealing with money, it's, it's real. God knows our needs. As I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I was driving on the freeway and I was coming back. I was a sales guy and, and uh, Karen and I were kind of wrestling with the concept of tithing. I mean, giving to God 10%, oh my gosh. And I was on the freeway and I saw this gigantic sign for Lotto. It was $200 million. No kidding. I said this little prayer real quick. I said, God, if you will give me that, I'll give back half to you, I'll only keep 100 million, I'll give you back half and you can use it in the church and for your glory. And I had this thought instantly and it said, I've already been so generous to you and how come you give me nothing? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you have been generous to me. I have a wonderful family. I have a home. I'm driving in a car that you're letting me have. And shortly after that, Karen and I realized the value of tithing. It's a hard issue. A couple things application. Be strategic. There's a reason God has given you what you have. Be strategic with what he's given you. That means you plan it out. Do you have a budget? Do you think through that first fruit that goes back to the Lord? Two, free will offering. This is over and above the tithe. This means, yes, I give strategically to the church because this is my home where I'm fed, but however, there are ministries that are so valuable, like Pastor Farouz in the Persian ministry. What a wonderful ministry to give to you. That's called a free will offering. Third thing, are your hands open or are they closed? Karen and I kind of live with the idea, Lord, it's all yours. And sometimes there's going to be a family member that knocks on your doors, I have a need. There's going to be a friend that needs something. And there are times that God will call us to be generous because that's who we are because we've been changed. Amen.